There are so many experiences that are basic to being human that we won't talk about publicly because we don't want to express them. Um, and then everyone else who is experiencing them feels terribly alone, and they feel like a foreigner or an alien. So one of the things good stories do is they say, okay, this is what it's like to, to, to experience a broken heart, for example, right? Or embarrassment or shame. And by hearing those stories, we're better able to interpret our own, our own lives and make sense of our experiences. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Alan Noble is Associate Professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University and Editor-in-Chief of Christ and Pop Culture. His new book is You Are Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhuman World. Tim Keller has said, Alan is, I hope, the beginning of a new generation of scholar writers who can bring the insights of some of the more esoteric critics of the modern self down to earth and apply them in the most practical, compelling, and helpful form. May Alan's tribe increase. Yes and amen. May Alan Noble's tribe increase. Alan Noble, I'm so glad that you have made time to be on the Habit Podcast today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So your new book is You Are Not Your Own. Um, and in many ways, this is an anthropology book. Um, it is. Tell me what, of course, this is not a... Uh, uh, tell me what, what, why we might call this an anthropology, but let's, let's start there. Yeah, that's a good question. So as I'm thinking through some of the, the social ills that plague our society, um, it seemed to me, it, it, I, I was actually just thinking about the Heidelberg que- uh, first question and answer. Um, what is your only comfort in life and death that you are not your own, but belong body and soul and life and death uh, to your savior, Jesus Christ. And when I thought about it in context of that, um, and this idea of belonging and the question of, well, what, what does it mean? What are we fundamentally as human beings? What is, it, what is our relationship to, to others? Do we belong to ourselves or do we belong to someone else? Mm-hmm. And as I thought through a lot of the, as I said, the social ills that I see plaguing, uh, see us plaguing society. So for example, the, the tremendous problem that questions of identity pose, mm-hmm. the modern, very slippery idea of identity. Uh, when I think about um, specific ills like, um, you know, uh, heavy pornography use, um, the use of, of drugs to, to dull ourselves and all these yeah. other sorts of things, um, it seemed to me that a lot of them assumed a certain kind of anthropology. Uh, specifically, mm-hmm. it assumed that we are our own and we belong to ourselves. And then from that basis, everything else is built up. Um, so that's, that's the theory that I'm working with. I'm sort of raising the question, what if, what if society is built uh, based on an anthropology that's false? What, w- yeah. what would happen? What would happen? And I think that the natural result would be that we'd be miserable, that we'd be living in a foreign environment. And yeah. that certainly feels like it's the case with us. And by anthropology, you just mean our idea of what a human being is. What's right. What is, yeah. Um, the... You start with with the uh, the image of um, the way that lions in captivity, even in the best possible, you know, uh, settings, the best the best zoos are still a little crazy. That's right. right. They, they pace and they um, uh, and, and and the best the best we can do for them still isn't very good. Um, and I you've used a term I've never heard before: zookosis. Um, psychosis of of a zoo animal, um, yeah. but of course we also live in a human 
built environment built by people who aren't <laughs> who aren't terribly good at, at that's right yeah like we're we're stuck living in human cultures and human cultures um succeed to various degrees in uh in creating cultures that we can be sane in that's right and uh, you make the case as you've already said that that um a culture that assumes that we belong to ourselves uh may be a hard place to live as a sane person yeah, and it, specifically, what what happens is it creates what I call these responsibilities of self belonging. So, if we assume that we are our own, then all of a sudden our lives become these projects, and um, we're the only one working on the project. We're the only one who can define the project. Uh-huh. We're the only one who can decide when the project is complete. Uh-huh. And that kind of endlessness is destructive to our souls. Uh, so, yeah. for example, uh, what ends up happening is that in order to feel like our identity is secure, we have to constantly be projecting it out into the world is something called expressive individualism, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're on social media constantly saying, this is my brand, this is who I am, this is who I am. So you have some kind of affirmation that you have a static identity, but it's never enough. You're always mm-hmm. looking for more and more affirmation. Yeah, so that's, that's the theory is that, that based on that false anthropology, we, we run into all kinds of problems because the burdens it creates upon us are inhuman. Right. And I can't, so I, yeah, I, I can't look outward for my sense of self. I have to, I have to keep looking inward or, and, and, and I'm so interested in this dilemma that you talk about that on the one hand, I, I say, nobody can tell me who I am. And on the other hand, I really need for people uh, to affirm me and who I've decided I am. Right. Right. Yes. And and as you say, it requires that we express ourselves a lot, (laughs) which I thought was funny. Uh, Yeah, that's one of the uh, ironies of of identity is that in the contemporary setting where our identities are constantly seen as fluid, constantly in flux. And so what we try to do is we try to solidify them by projecting ourselves out into the world and getting affirmation. Now, in order to do that, what we want to do is we want to say it doesn't matter what other people say. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks. I'm my own person. But that's not how identity works. Identity inherently needs a witness. There has to be somebody outside of you who can observe your identity, bear witness to it, and say something about it. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if your witness is uh, the rest of the world, you're constantly going to need more witnesses. And that's, I mean, that sounds like social media culture, right? Yeah. Like you need more and more witnesses to your existence in order to feel like it's real. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, at one point you say... Uh, modern culture feels like a million people in in a room, each shouting their own name <laughs> repeatedly and more and more loudly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, desperately. Yep. Yeah. Um, so what you just described, Alan, a person expressing self, needing witnesses, needing an audience, or one might say readers, um, that seems a spe- that, that, as you know, this is a podcast uh, for writers. Uh, you know, conversation with writers about writing. That seems to be a situation. The, the situation you just described seems to me to be perhaps even more acute, or could be more acute for writers than for the for the average person. Anyone who, for their career, is public facing and um, their income is directly tied to the number of people 
and the prominence of the people who uh, observe them or pay for their product, those people are going to be tempted more so than every the general population <laughs> to tie their sense of self worth to to numbers, mm-hmm. right? Um, because you can feel like, well, if enough people read my book, then I guess I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Like I, I guess I've done something meaningful. I guess my life has some some purpose. And then, of course, you publish your next book, and it's a dud, and you, you feel yeah, like, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh well, <laughs> that was nice. Yeah, but even quite apart from you know the the career issues, you know, because the the huge majority of people who write don't expect to make you know much money at it. Um, but still, there's this idea that that as I'm putting things out into the world, I'm always asking writers, what what's the smallest number of people that could read what you write that you what you've written, and you still feel mm-hmm. like that's enough, which I think is, and, and if anybody says, oh, just if it changes one person's life, that's, that's enough. That doesn't, I, I don't buy that either. Right. Because it takes a, it's a lot of work to write. It is. And if nobody's going to read it or if 10 people are going to read it, or if nobody reads it, and only God knows that you've done it. That's, that's something to sort through. It is. It is. Yeah. Because if you think about as a writer, as a Christian writer, you know, m- my question is, um, okay, am I using my talents to love my neighbor, right? And and if I'm spending hundreds of hours working on it, so this book was probably, I think, three years in the making, lots of time thinking, lots of research, lots of time writing and revising. So this was a lot of time. I could be helping a lot of people do a lot of different things. Yeah. So you're right. You do you do have to ask. I mean, if if it's not actually going to 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 be for the good of my neighbor in a meaningful way, then I probably should devote my time to doing something something else. Um you, you talk about this idea of defining our own moral horizons. Um the the idea that well that we live in a in a world um in which we get to we we choose our own reasons to live um and and you sort of in in related ways talk about you know we we ask and answer why we should put up with suffering which is something that animals probably don't do right human beings do um we adopt visions of the good life to work toward and you say we're all confronted with the challenge of justifying our lives at, at one point or another. I think all these ideas are, are really closely, I mean, I know they're, they're really closely related. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're talking about what are the stories you tell? You know, what story do I, does my story fit into? Um, and I just want to talk about that a little bit, um, especially, again, since writers are people who are interested in stories. Right. Um, Either expressing their, you know, either telling my story or giving other people a story that they can live in and live into. And so the question, I, I think um, for most modern people, the way they experience life is as if um, existence is a, is a story uh-huh. and they're the, they're the protagonist. Okay. And uh, I guess I would just push back on that. I mean, of course, it is true that we have stories that, and yeah. those stories are, it's a good thing that we have those stories. Narratives are, are, beneficial they're beautiful when done well um but the idea that that this story is our story and we're the protagonist i think that is that very idea belonging to ourselves because what happens is you have to tell a good story 
You've mm-hmm. got to tell an interesting story. You've got to tell an exciting story. You've got to prove that your life meant something, that it was worthwhile, that it was significant. And then you're on this treadmill of trying to optimize yourself, trying to achieve certain things, trying to, and it's, it's, it, it's, it's never enough. And, mm-hmm. and as you said, you know, you're constantly having to, to define your own values. So what does it mean for me to live a good life? Well, I'm going to have to figure that out for myself. Well, if you're figuring it out for yourself, you're probably going to change your mind. So then maybe <laughs> midlife, which is very common, right? Yeah. You have a crisis because you're like, well, when my twenties, I thought this career would establish me and I would feel a sense of significance. I get married, have some kids, I have this career. Now here I am and this doesn't seem to give me the kind of sense of fulfillment I need. So I have to look inside myself again and find something different. And then all of a sudden the quest begins over again. Um, and I think that's different from, you know, in the book, I talk about Dante as, as, as a difference. Uh-huh. He, has, he has what we would call a midlife crisis. Midway through his life's journey, he finds himself lost in the woods. The difference is that he knows who Dante is. Mm-hmm. What he doesn't know is how to follow God rightly. And that's what the Divine Comedy is, is that he is seeking God. He's not seeking Dante. If yeah. we were to tell the Divine Comedy today, it would be Dante trying to find himself. And that distinction, that difference, I think says volumes about the modern condition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I went hiking last week, and I read your, um, the part of the book that I had on the plane on the way out to Yosemite. I was on this big hike. And a woman was coming down the trail, and I'm talking. This was half. This was a half dome hike. It's one of a, a really really hard hike. And she was coming down with a bundle in her hands, and in the bundle, as it turns out, was a half drowned squirrel that she had rescued. And this squirrel had, you know, she said it was it was almost dead. The the birds were pecking at it. And I just felt so bad for it. I'm carrying it down um, to the ranger station to see if they can revive it. And it seemed obvious that she, that there was an important part of her sense of who she was, that I'm the kind of person that would rescue a squirrel who was, who I ran across. And I, you know, and I couldn't decide it's the right thing to do here to say, hey, the rangers are not going to save that squirrel. You need to throw it in the bushes. (laughs) Or, but, but it it was, it was this. Yeah. I, I, I really thought about your, your book as I saw this woman who was, I don't want to be, I don't know how to talk about this without sounding ruder than I mean to, but it was just this, it, it was a performance. Like she, it was, it, it, it was certainly, I know she was a compassionate person and cared about the squirrel. Sure. It was also important to her that you could see from the sort of saintly look on her face that she was expecting us to be, yeah. congratulate her for being so, you know, such a squirrel lover. Right. And um, and by the, this was a really hard, hard hike. I mean, she, she really did. She was working really hard for this squirrel and I did the hike the next day. And the thought that somebody could do the last four miles carrying a squirrel is really astonishing. Um, and, and I, I ran into her later and she still had the saintly look on her face, but she, but the, 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 um, the Rangers had told her to throw it in the bushes that they weren't going to rescue any squirrel. I mean, you know, cause so I the guess signs everywhere said, her. leave the wildlife alone. Um, anyway, I, I, I might've, I just took up too much time with that anecdote, but, but cause we have valuable things to talk about, but I, but I, I felt like as I saw that and I just read your book, I thought yeah. that explains so much about what's going on here. This, this person who needs to. Yeah. And I think, 
I, I think it's I think it's uh, important. You know, your impulse I think was right because on the one hand, you're you're acknowledging she really is compassionate, and that's a that's a good thing. So, like, we don't what we don't want to do is say these people are a bunch of phonies, like Holden Caulfield, and say, you know, you're all a bunch of phonies. This is all performance because the human heart is complex, mm-hmm. and often we do th- mixed things. Sometimes we do things that are genuinely good, but we do it, and we also folk we, we feel compelled to post it on Instagram because we also want to be performing at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that we need to be seen doing these things, I think does speak to the kind of identity formation and expression that is so deeply embedded in our, in our culture. Um, and even when it's kind of pathetic, I mean, so the example you gave, there's kind of this tragedy. So one, she's suffering, right? Like she's working really hard to save the squirrel. Yeah. And, and two, you know, it's pointless, right? So the, yeah. the image of my book is, the image of Sisyphus rolling this boulder up a hill uh-huh. and it just rolls back down. And yeah. that's sort of the opposite, right? This woman yeah. carrying this squirrel down this hill, but it's also <laughs> absurd, right? Yeah. Because she's going to throw it in the bush. It's not going to accomplish anything. And do you know how many squirrels died in Yosemite in the two hours she was carrying that little squirrel? <laughs> I have no, I, do you know? I don't. I thought yeah, I, I don't. you're, you're the, yeah, you're the I don't know. one who wrote the book. <laughs> I, I do you know research squirrel population. Yeah. <laughs> But I'm, I'm sure many squirrels died in the hour right. or two that she was carrying that squirrel. Yeah. Um, but, and, and I think she would have carried it even if the, I hadn't been there to see it. Right. I mean, it, yeah. it wasn't, I don't mean it was a performance, but that she wouldn't have done anyway. But as you said, uh, we, we need an audience. Yeah. Um, uh, you can be honest. Does that anecdote seem relevant to what we're talking about here, Alan? Yes. I mean, so one of the challenges of this book is that there are about a million different ways of seeing this, right? There are lots of different ways that we perform in order to feel like our identities are significant, right? So that look of, what did you do? A halo? What did you I said call it? Sort of a saintly, kind of a saintly yes. Right. Well, um, you know, we've, we've experienced that. I mean, we've, we've done some good thing. And then for a little while, we've got to kind of high. We kind of feel like, okay, I guess my life my life matters because I've done this good thing in the world. The world's filled with suffering, but I've carried this squirrel down, down the trail to try to rescue it and then thrown it in a bush because there's <laughs> nothing to be done. But I've yeah. done this act. And um, there's this phrase that J.D. Salinger uh, uses in his book, uh, Franny and Zooey. One of his characters says, tiny, meaningless, and sad making. And that's the phrase, I think, that uh. describes a lot of our human efforts at uh, being ourselves, at, huh. at, at trying to be our own. So that what that woman was doing was tiny, and it was meaningless, huh. and it was empty. In the end, it was like, that didn't matter. It didn't, it was empty. And But it's that... And but then he tiny me, sorry not empty tiny meaningless and sad making, sad making because that that's that last part because it is kind of sad you kind of feel like you're so desperate to feel alive that you'll do this thing that's absurd yeah so yeah, yeah I think that is relevant or you might ask your podcast guests was that really a good anecdote can you tell me tell me was that a good anecdote yeah, that's another way to uh, <laughs> <laughs> to express this that's true <laughs> or to enact this need uh, okay well. Um, let's see here. Self. Oh, 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 I I know what I wanted to ask you about. It was this idea. You said the, the, um, the sort of modern narrative, the story that we, that we tell over and over again is the story of self-discovery, right? The person Mm -hmm. who, um, 
you know, every Disney movie, somebody is the world's trying to tell them who they are. Right. And they say, no, I'm not listening to you. I'm going to go do this. Other thing. And I sing my, I want song at the beginning and then I go, go get it. And, right. um, and so, uh, and freedom is defined as the absence of constraints. Um, you know, it's, it's defined in those negative terms. You know, I, I'm throwing off constraint and now I'm free. Right. Um, what are, what's the other story? Uh, but what's the counter narrative to that story of finding oneself? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I mean, to go back to Dante, I think that would be the medieval answer. And that would have been the answer for ancient Christians as well, is that, that your life is not a story about self-discovery, but it's, it's a story about conforming your life to, to Christ, mm-hmm. to pursuing Christ-likeness. Um, and so you're, there's still that self-examination. So that doesn't go away. Examining yourself is very important. Uh, the unexamined life is, is not worth living. So this, that's important. You examine yourself. But you're examining yourself not to craft some certain identity or to find the true authentic Alan so that I can project it and receive affirmation, but to see where in my life uh, I am not conforming to Christ-likeness and so that I can change that. Um, that's not as... That's not as interesting as a, of, of a story, I think, to modern ears, right? But um, that hasn't historically been true, right? I, 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 again, I mean, this that that historically, you know, is a normal, uh, the normal story, the life's spiritual journey. So, is it, but is it is it possible uh, that the the real Alan is still somebody to be discovered? In other words, not not an Alan for you to invent, but an Alan for you to. Like I, I'm thinking about, I, I wrote a, I wrote a story called "The Charlatan's Boy" about a. You know, the first line is, "I didn't. I don't remember one thing about the day I was born." Hmm. And it's a it's a boy who the only person he who's ever told him who he is is a liar. Hmm. And um, by the end of the book, um. You know, he doesn't, I don't know that he knows he's on a journey of self-discovery, but anyway, he, he, yeah. he finds out who he's been all along. Um, so that was my first thought when, when I, when I saw you say, yeah. well, these modern, these modern writers, they're always tell, yeah. telling stories of self-discovery. Um, that wasn't, a, it wasn't a self that the boy invented. Right. It was a self that he was all, all along. I hope I'm not telling too much about the end of my own book. No, but anyway. no. There you go. Don't even have to read it. You spoiled it. No, um, I think, you know, um, as I said, self-reflection is is important. It's important for your soul. It's important for your life. And there are ways in which we can psycho- psychologically hide from ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. So deny who we are to ourselves. And I think, so uh, apart from these sort of philosophical questions that we're asking, I think it is the case that 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 people can often... Um, deny parts of themselves or try to fit in in certain ways that are just phony. And I think it's valuable for them to examine that and see, okay, is this, is this, is this true about me? Um, I, the difference that, that I would make with the way it's often portrayed in contemporary stories is the prominence, the significance of that self-discovery, right? <laughs> so you're not creating it, but you're still discovering it. Um, for a lot of modern stories, that's the quest, right? What does it mean to live a good life? It is to discover yourself mm-hmm. and to, to live authentically. That's it. That's the main thing. So where, whereas I would say, you know, it's 
psychologically healthy, it's a good thing, right? To be self-reflective and to examine yourself and to see, okay, you know, what, what is my personality like? Who, what, mm-hmm. what am I like? That can be, you know, valuable, uh, virtuous things to do, uh, examinations, but it's not the, the center. It doesn't make your right. existence valid. It's and a means toward an end, hopefully. Yeah. That, fair to say? That, that self-discovery is a means towards some bigger end than self-discovery. Yes. So, I mean, even, and it's interesting because if you read Calvin's Institutes, when he's talking about how do we know God? I mean, he says, you have to know yourself. Yeah. So when you, when you examine yourself, you actually realize your sin nature and you, your need yeah. for God. So, mm-hmm. and uh, Augustine, you know, and uh, uh, the confessions, I mean, he's, he's coming to understand himself better. Yeah. So self, yeah, self-reflection is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. When the quest for self-discovery is the end, then w- we run into problems. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Chesterton said the, the, the purpose of an open mind is, is the same as the purpose of an open mouth. So you can close on something. Mm. Um, and that seems relevant to what we're talking about, perhaps. Uh, sure. That, that the, the, the purpose of self-discovery is somehow so that you can then move on. Oh, yeah. Or self-examination is 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 not a necessarily a life. Never mind. I, I'm I'm getting off. off no, no, no. I think you're absolutely right. Yes. To the question. So uh, a, a lot of the times, what we're talking about with self-discovery is a never-ending project. Right. Right. So it's it's your whole life. You're you're yeah. always striving. And so we we'll talk about discovery, but the the <laughs> the trick is like we don't actually believe you're discovering it because there is no contemporary sense of what that looks like. Okay, what does it actually look like to look inside yourself and find the discrete, specific Alan Noble? Like, where is that in your mind or your heart? That We have no sense of that. So what does that even practically mean? Well, it usually means thinking about things that you like and dislike and desire and things, the way society has shaped your desires and affections and these sorts of things. But it's not, but it's not absolute. It's not objective. So there is no possible objective discovery. So we end up just mm-hmm. going on forever. Um, and that that's that's part of the problem. Whereas what yeah, whereas what I'm saying is that you know you do need to come to what Elliot calls the end of of your exploring. Yeah. So Alan, to return to what you said to a minute ago, you're suggesting there's there's there is or isn't a stable self to be discovered. What what are you what are you saying there? I'm not sure I, I quite understood what what you were getting at there. Um, I suppose that, that I'm going to answer that in, in maybe a paradoxical way. There okay. is a, an objective self that can be seen, but it can only be seen by God. Okay. Right. That's, that's who that is. And I mentioned earlier that we have this desire to have a witness to our identity. Somebody yeah. can see us. Well, for the Christian, God is that witness and right. he sees us truly. He sees us more truly than we see ourselves and all the contradictions that we have in ourselves and all the, the ways we hide truths from ourselves. He sees through all of that. And so that's where there is an Alan and, and whatever he's doing, whatever he's at, whatever his experiences and memories and sensations have been, God knows that. And so there is something static. There is something true. Now, um, I think f- for us, for humans, is if we go looking for a, a specific discrete self, then we're just we're just going to run around in circles. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't think there is a way for us to um, 
to do that. I mean, uh, in some sense, I think identity uh, tests, you know, the Enneagram, you know, the Myers-Briggs are ways of trying to quantify these things because we really do want to be able to point to it. So this is what I am. I'm this thing right here. But it's never, it's never true, right? I mean, I mean, you can get at some truths, but it's not you. It's not, it's not your identity. That's not how it works. Um, So I don't, I don't think we can pinpoint. um, Yeah self like that yeah i mean you're making me think about that the moment in in revelation where there's the white stone that has your real name there oh yeah. that's the re- now i know what my right yeah that's a good always example. Hope, i always hope mine turns out to say badass on it but. <laughs> <laughs> um we'll find out <laughs> that's right we'll find out one of these days um self-expression you've talked about self-expression Self-expression is near and dear to writers. What's a healthy posture towards self-expression? That's interesting. That's an interesting question. So the the challenge with it is the uh, our temptation to slip into what's called expressive individualism. Charles Taylor talks about this. Many others have as well. Um, where we feel like our identities are only secure insofar as we are perpetually expressing them. Mm-hmm. And we've already talked about how that's that's yeah. an insufficient way. Um, however, expression is basic to what it means to be human. We're constantly expressing ourselves the way we dress. I mean, everything we do is some sort of an expression of a belief, ideal, values, whatever. So um, expression itself is not uh, a, a bad guy. Um, mm-hmm. When you come to feel your identity is more solidified, the more you express yourself. Um, that's probably a sign that you're finding uh, your identity through expression rather than than something else. Yeah. But self-expression is also so important because um, if we don't then express ourselves, then we can also we'll, we will feel so isolated. Right? Hmm. There are so many experiences that are basic to being human that we won't talk about publicly because we don't want to express them. Um, and then everyone else who is experiencing them feels terribly alone and they feel like a foreigner or an alien. Mm-hmm. So one of the things good stories do is they say, okay, this is what it's like to, to, to experience a broken heart, for example, right? Or embarrassment or shame. And by hearing those stories, we're better able to interpret our own our own lives and make sense of our experiences so expression itself is not is not a bad thing it's the question is what is our our self-expression doing uh-huh. and for some artists uh self-expression is this is what makes them alive is yeah. that they express themselves um and that's where i would say you know something's problematic right there yeah I, I- I think it, it, especially for writers, it might be helpful to just to think of uh, self-expression as a given. Like as I write, I'm I'm just expressing myself. I'm I'm not here to express myself. I'm here to talk about some truth I didn't invent. Yeah. And in the process, then I, I it's inevitable that I'll express myself. But I'm not going to think, how can I, you know, express the essence of Jonathan Rogers by writing? But rather, how do I talk about Yes. You know, whatever topic I'm talking about today and whatever way I talk about that, I can hardly help but that be a self. That, that's just going to be a kind of self-expression. That's right. just like when I walk my particular posture and gait that I'm not thinking about is a, is a kind of self-expression. That's right. And I don't think I'm going to express myself through my walk. 
I'm, there are people who probably do, but I don't think in those terms. And, uh, and I think that's a pretty healthy way to think about, about writing, you know, because you want your reader to not come to a better understanding of Jonathan Rogers, but to, to come to a, a better understanding of, of truth. Yeah. Right. And so ideally that's what we're doing, right? We, um, but that's not always the case, right? For some writers they really do center themselves. The, the idea is to express themselves. They want their, their, so, uh, as a side note, I've, I, even, even pro, you know, nonfiction writers, I've, I can think of some writers who, whose prose is so, it calls such attention to itself, I can tell that the author wants me to be thinking about him. Mm-hmm. Like while I'm reading it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's true. Like I, I visualize the person sitting at a desk typing because yeah. they're, it calls so much attention to Absolutely. Um, but there's other kinds of writing where the author disappears, yeah. right? And what you're left with is the idea, the truth that, that needs to be, or that the author believes needs to be expressed. Yeah. And that I think is the ideal what we want to pursue. Yeah. Well, very good. All right. Uh, I'm going to end by asking you the question I usually ask at the end of these conversations. That is, who are the writers who make you want to write? Excellent question. So uh, I would say Cormac McCarthy, right? So that's fiction. So that might be, might feel strange, but. Do you ever write fiction? Um, Not to speak of. Yeah. I would like to. I would like to, but. It's a craft, and I'm I don't have that craft. Yeah. Um, let me see. That is a good question. I mean, a lot of unfortunately, a lot of my favorite authors um, aren't actually great. I don't think great. Right? I love Charles Taylor, for example, but uh-huh. his prose is. I don't I'm very thankful for the people who interpret Charles Taylor for me. Yeah, I, it's uh, yeah, yeah. So um, it's not not Charles Taylor. I mean. I, uh gosh. You know, growing up, Francis Schaefer, even though I had have would have a lot of quibbles with him today, uh-huh. um, was able to communicate a lot of truths in a way that was winsome and mm-hmm. clear and enjoyable to read. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's um that's been something. Also William Cavanaugh. Um I don't know William Cavanaugh. Yeah, so he wrote um gosh, what did he write? Um, religious violence or something like the myth of religious violence or something. I, I think that's the title of it. And I okay. read that and it was very influential because he focused a lot on words and, and how we define religion, how often people define religion in order to justify violence. Huh. Um, and it's a, it's a fascinating book. Um, and I like that sort of close reading, um, close use of language. That's been helpful to me. Um, well, it might be fair to say even Charles Taylor makes you want to write because you want to communicate what to, you know, to make Charles Taylor's ideas accessible. That's true. That's true. No, yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I guess I was just thinking in a very narrow way. No, a lot of, yeah. So it, in that sense, there are actually a lot of people. Yeah. So uh, Zygmunt Bauman is, I think, a great author who's uh, more dense than than the average person needs uh, to to wade through, I lo- I love Jackie Lul. That's he's a central part of this book, okay. um, this latest book, and um, a French sociologist. Um, those are um, yeah, those are probably the main ones. All right. Well, Alan Noble, I really appreciate this time. I've enjoyed the I've enjoyed the heck out of this, and yeah. uh, it's nice, nice to meet you. So I hope we can yeah. talk again one of these days soon. Maybe next time you write a book. 
that'd be great. All right, thanks. All right, thanks. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Special thanks as well to Taylor Linhart for letting us use her song Diamonds as the theme music for season three of The Habit Podcast. You can learn more about Taylor and follow her work at taylorlinhart.com. The Habit membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.